Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. At Music Biz, we decided that continuing to provide a forum for our community to come together and support each other was the most important thing we could do right now. So we started a Zoom chat series called Music Biz Live. Today's episode is the audio from my chat with representatives from several European industry trade associations. Many things are still uncertain, but one thing's for sure, we're all in this together. As always, support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk to global trade associations about their responses to the COVID crisis. It's all coming up on the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Helen Smith of Impala, Tobias Holtzmuller of Gemma, Eloise Fontenelle of Sassem, John Mottram of PRS for Music, Kim Bailey of ERA, and Francesca Trinini of Peer Music Italy. Helen, I want to get started with you especially since I just saw this morning that Impala has put out a 10-step plan for how Europe can reopen successfully over the next five years. Can you just give us a little bit of a taste of that? Sure. So at Impala, we have a a task force which uh, meets every week and we came out with a crisis plan a few weeks ago. The task force is, is actually chaired by Francesca, who is the chair of Impala, as well as a task force. And the moment really is very critical because we have seen a lot of calls for action, but we haven't really seen it complemented by a timeline. So this is what we felt we had to do right now. Particularly, it has a, a very European story because the EU is, is putting in place a recovery plan. And we felt that there was a big focus within the sector on crisis measures. And we wanted to really take a step forward and and look towards recovery as the focus of this with a series of timelines in there so that we can actually hold decision makers to account and say, look, you need to do this now. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. And just so everyone who's watching understands, Impala is the body that represents into music in Europe to the EU, right? To the government. Yes, that's right. So we are the pan-European equivalent of HOIM, for example. Definitely. So Francesca, since you are both the chair of Impala, you also work for Peer Music, and also you have the distinction of living in Italy in, I believe, very close to where the epidemic started. Can you give us some of your perspective on where we were before and where we are now? Yeah, I am actually in the middle of it in a town called Brescia, which is world famous for being probably the one of the worst affected, the second worst So it's not uh, getting any better at the moment. So we are still very much in an emergency. At the same time, the government has not put into place any measures that are directed at our sector particularly. And this is very worrying because we have very particular needs that are not the same as uh, commerce or anybody else. 
So we will be struggling in a few months' time when probably all the effort by the government will have been taken up by other companies and there will be nothing left for us to start again and grow our businesses again. So yes, with Impala, we work very closely as I am also a member of the board of PMI, the Italian Association of Labels. We work very closely with Impala on every single aspect of this and are trying to put whatever is coming from Impala in front of our government and the people that we work with all the time, the institutions, because it gives them a perspective on Europe and what we are not doing in Italy that other countries are. We were able to show the best, in my opinion, the shining example of Germany, which intervened very quickly and very effectively Whereas we have had a lot of promises so far, but nothing much in concrete. So in that way, Impala's work is very helpful for us, a roadmap of what should be a recovery for the music sector in Europe is what we needed at the moment. And we're discussing it with the government as it happens in the next few days. A very positive point, actually, is the fact that our government decided to give priority to the directive on copyright that should have been implemented will have to be implemented before the end of this year and it was not on the books before and now it is on the agenda and that should give us a little bit of relief in the future from you know better rates that we might be getting from over the tops. Well Tobias since Germany was just called out as doing well can you give us an overview of how it's working for you guys? Yes. Well, I guess from a medical perspective, it's true that Germany has, has not been hit as, as hardly as, as Italy and all. In a way, we had the advantage of having more time to react because Italy was way ahead of us in, in terms of which country was affected first time. I'm, I'm based in Munich, I was uh, away from the Italian borders. I guess the problem when it comes to cultural life and, and come to the industry, that's so much the disease, but the cure that is prescribed against the disease that is currently killing our, our cultural life. So, so we're having uh, basically to fight with the same type of measures that other countries have. And therefore, I, I guess German cultural life is at the moment as badly affected as, as the cultural life in basically any other European country and any other country around the world where public performance of all sorts have come to a standstill. Right. And I think we're all facing that as a globe at this point because, you know, the venues were the first to close and probably will be the last to open because the question for all of us is how do we know that it's safe? You know, how do we know that it's safe to get back into public? I mean, it's not a theoretical question anymore. It's a, it's a practical question. Absolutely. And I don't know a single country around the world where there is a clear timetable when music performance can go back to normal. So as Helen has pointed out earlier, I mean, we're talking a lot about financial relief, but what, what we really need is perspective. Absolutely. The response has been so wonderful from the music community. You know, I really feel like across the globe, people like all of you have really responded to artists' needs. And John, I know that PRS has done a bunch of things. You guys have a PRS emergency relief fund. Last Friday, you did lockdown, which was 24-hour performance, which you know a lot of people are doing sort of the live streaming performance thing. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about how that went? 
Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. I'm 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 still slightly amazed that I ended up running the emergency relief fund for PRS and it's all all I seem to have done for the last five to six weeks. So I can talk with some knowledge. So I think it's interesting. The UK follows and continues to follow quite closely both the the impact, the death rate, all of the issues that, that France has. And and we went into lockdown about the same time as France did. So we've kind of mirrored that. I think what became very apparent to us quite early on is Whilst we knew the UK government was going to step in with some financial stimulus, which it did do, but we also knew that for the vast majority of our members, vast majority of performers who operate self-employed or as you know small businesses, those measures were going to be much more complicated and take longer to implement, which has been proven to be the case. We're now looking mid to late June before the government is able to give the grants or the money that it's going to give to self-employed people, which is up to a maximum of two and a half thousand. So we identified very early on that we had a group of members who usually fall into two categories or maybe three, where they were about to enter the festival season. So in many instances, invested a lot of their savings into preparing for the festival season, or they were entering into a period where they tend to earn most of their money during the live sector, so they were losing income there. And then the third category of our members who earn a lot from teaching and the schools were closed, all of those teaching opportunities fell away almost immediately. So we had a group of members who were kind of coming to the point in time where their savings were diminished because they were about to enter into the kind of the high-end live earning period. And there was a period before we knew the government was going to introduce its measures. So as you say, we launched the hardship scheme, I think about two weeks after lockdown, we had in excess of five and a half thousand applications from 20 countries around the world and have distributed. And we closed that scheme Friday on the 17th. And we have just about to launch a second round of that, which to your point, the lockdown that we ran last Friday was a fundraising activity to support that second round. So we will be running a second hardship scheme, which is therefore intended to get people to that June date when the government funds become available. Kim, I mentioned venues being sort of the first to close, but, you know, independent retail has taken a massive hit here. And I keep trying to think of the right metaphor, like the the one-two punch, you know, that retail's been facing in the last 10 years anyway. This is, I feel like this could be a knockout. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, hopefully retail, independent retail will stay strong. I think they will. And I think you're right. It's a bit of a double whammy. They were already experiencing structural change as we moved to digital. But in the UK, particularly, the government's actually been quite supportive of retail. So whilst all of our independent retailers are having to close because they're not considered essential, they're actually all receiving rates, rebates from government. So they're not having to pay rates in terms of the properties they own. All of the staff are able to be paid, even if they're not working through the government scheme that's funding effectively 80% of salaries. And in addition, because they're small retailers, they're also getting grants of 10 to 25,000 pounds. So for most of our independent retailers, if this is a three to six month scenario, they can survive on the money they're getting from government. And what they're all doing is really implementing plans to bring their businesses online. So we've seen a, a huge number of our members who weren't already online getting online. And despite the fact that physical sales were 
50% down in the first weeks of lockdown, we're actually beginning to see those creep back up again. And particularly the vinyl sector had a really good week last week as there was product that really worked for our independence. So I think what we've seen really is a lot of entrepreneurial spirit really kicking in. And despite the fact it's really tough out there, I think the good ones will make it through. Definitely. Uh, Record Store Day, which is an international effort, has just started Record Store Day drops. They just announced that. So you guys are participating, I assume, in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. We had a a lot of conversations with the US organisers and all the other international coordinators to come up with that plan. So it's been a kind of internationally sanctioned plan to do it in three drops to kind of avoid people having to go to stores and queuing up because it wouldn't be particularly practical or sensible in this environment to be encouraging people to do that. So we're hoping that, you know, by getting the sector to support independent retailers across a, a long period of time, and avoid people having to pay for all of that product up front. That should help everyone. Yeah. was Vampire by Wimps. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Helen Smith of Impala, Tobias Holtzmuller of Gemma, Eloise Fontenelle of Sassem, John Mottram of PRS for Music, Kim Bailey of Era, and Francesca Trinini of Pure Music Italy. Tobias, I want to come back to Germany. I'm interested to know, I mean, if you guys sort of did a great job for this first wave of COVID of keeping a lot of people safe, what is your government talking about in terms of sort of the next period of time? Because I feel like that's where we all are is figuring out where do we go from here? Because great, you know, Germany did well, not as many people were ill, but that doesn't mean that people, you know, if we all go back to work as usual, everyone falls ill. Absolutely, Portia. And I think this is the right question to ask because 
even though there, there, there might be not as many people in hospital and, and not, not as many people severely ill in Germany as in other countries, we still do not really have a perspective when there will be live music performance. We still do not have a perspective when festivals will be, will be possible. Even like small scales concerts are still banned. I mean, we're, we're currently discussing reopening restaurants and bars probably in the middle of May carefully and then they will wait for another two weeks and then they will see if they can open larger restaurants. But I suspect that clubs, bars, concert venues will probably remain closed all over the summer season. And I think John has pointed out that the summer season in, in Europe is basically where these people make their living. And if I may add one other aspect, we're talking a lot about the life sector because obviously the life sector has taken this unprecedented blow now as the first to come. But if you look at, at other fields of people working in music, like movie composers, TV composers, production uh, music, I mean, they basically lost all their work over the summer. I mean, no one is able to produce a movie or a TV series this summer in Europe. So all these people will lose out on a, on a lot of work and they will probably experience these losses a bit later than the life sector because they're the most immediately affected. But I fear that we will have to live with the impact of this crisis for, for at least two years in the European music market. So I wanted to make an observation, which I think Tobias has touched on, and I think Kim explained really well, which is if you were to generalize the way that governments have approached this, it is, and I generalize here, a, an attempt to mothball for want of a much better phrase. So there's a two-month window, three-month window where we can keep you going. So when we come out of this, we've still got all these businesses operating and they're very short-term targeted measures. I think the question for the music industry is that mothballing isn't going to be for two, three months in the live sector. It could be a year, it could be 18 months, you know, certainly in the festivals and, and the big indoor spaces. And even to Tobias's point, you don't mothball the film and TV industry and then get it up and running from day one, three months later. So it's how does the music industry kind of keep ourselves going when we're one of the group of people, say like sporting events, who fall outside of that predetermined mothballing period, if that makes sense. Because we need six months a year, maybe 18 months support in some parts of the sector. Exactly. Helen, I was going to ask you because of the 10-step plan, what I thought was fascinating is that the first step is to value music and culture. And I thought that's so European. We couldn't get that out of our government. You know what I mean? There's no way we could get them to pledge to value you know, music and culture in a long-standing way. We just have a very different system here. But I love it that that was sort of the first step. And then that it's a five-year plan. I think that's genius because I think we're looking at that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we feel on the, on the task force at Impala and already it's been, it's been touched on that we've done the crisis reactions. And of course, there will be more crisis reactions as things develop. But we really are now in this, okay, so where do we go? How do we get back to as normal as possible alive? How do we get everyone back to work, including artists and cultural workers? in a way that respects social distancing, in a way that's safe for the public, that's safe for artists, safe for workers. And these are the questions that I think that 
certainly in the task force we're going to be looking at in the next in the next couple of weeks, what is Germany saying? You know, why is is Latvia opening its shops and and, and may open clubs maybe earlier than our countries? What advice have they got, and and how does it compare? What are the different examples of best practices? Because of course, for a lot of our members, it's very hard to continue to be normal for as long as your artists can't tour. And of course, we have examples where labels and artists are, are, are coming up with alternatives. But, you know, in essence, for many members, it is all about the tour. It is all about the, the release. And for as long as you can't do that, you're kind of in this pause position. And, and that's really fatal for a small company. And I think this is making a really important point here that the exchange of information, what type of expertise does one government have and the other doesn't, this is really extremely important in this situation because, for example, how easily can people be infected in an open-air situation? This is something that is basically no research on that because the entire pandemic started over the winter season when people were basically locked up in, in rooms and, and all the, the experience we have is infective procedure in, in closed environments, in, in, in basically rooms. So, so what happens if people go outside? Will it be less dangerous or, or equally dangerous? That's what nobody really knows at the time. And I think to have more, more research on that and more intel on that is tremendously important. Francesca, do you have any perspective on that? Because I feel like Italy is sort of the, you know, ground zero and you guys have been in it longer, you know, than most of the rest of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you from the future. <laughs> First of all, I wanted to come back to your question to Helen a minute ago, because I think that, that very European attitude of asking the European community to to put a value on culture and on our sector is backed up by actual figures. You know, there is an actual incredible value to the work of musicians, writers, artists, live performances and so on. So it's very real and very substantial. So it might look European, but it's actually very grounded. And I think it's high time that uh, the European Union and national governments, particularly ours, take that into account and don't treat us as a bunch of people who do this because they like it, although we do like it. As to perspective from Italy and from our situation here, from a health point of view, it's no better than any of the other countries that are represented here although we've been in it for longer. So I'm afraid it might not be as quick as we expect or hope to slow down to an extent that we actually can go out and test the water, so to speak. So here we are sort of kind of hoping to be able to open shops on the 18th of May, but it's not confirmed and it depends very much on the figures and maybe the government will decide to opening certain areas of Italy and others and my will be one of the others for sure because uh, everywhere else in Italy hasn't been so severe. So, you know, that's, that's really in general the situation health-wise. Eloise, how about in France? What is the rollout looking like in terms of reopening? Just because, you know, I myself am really worried that if we don't have a better plan and it's open a little bit, cases spike close it down, open a little bit, close this spike, close it down. You know, it's this sort of roller coaster. And I was in a Zoom meeting yesterday where it was a crisis management situation. And they were saying, we may have to be prepared as a globe 
to have periods of openness and periods of closedness. So, you know, for example, retail stores, Kim would have to get all their online stuff organized so that they, because they know that in the future, they may be closed for a period of time and have to only sell online. I mean, it really is quite a, an interesting change. I don't know what, what they're talking about in France. Well, this stop and go <laughs> that can really happen uh, because uh, of the risk of a second wave and even a third wave is part of all the uncertainties on which we have no hand. That's why when the prime minister yesterday presented the roadmap, they say that by the end of May, they will make a decision based on health experts and doctors and, and everybody to know if they can open bars, cafes, restaurants, cinemas, and cultural establishments. So we won't know before the end of May, but for sure, we know that, and we are quite sure that for what regards at least festivals, gathering, a lot of people indoor, it won't be possible before a long time. But there's nothing less sure than <laughs> what's going on right now. So we cannot uh, have an announce any, anything. <laughs> right. No, I mean, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really even so difficult to assess what the situation is because at the moment we're still living it. And there's no really any way of understanding the effect that it's had and uh, how long that will go on for. And it is a really strange world and a new situation we need to cope with. So it's, it's very difficult to talk about the future, you know. And we tried with the, with the roadmap to sort of lay out some posts that would be irrespective of what's going on health-wise and whether or not we go and stop and go and stop in the future because those are really important markings that we, we need to follow. And that was an attempt, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how that will be received and, and what comments we will get, because that kind of conversation can, can spark solutions, in my opinion. I think that there's potentially two factors here for me, one of which is what the government decide to do in terms of how you ease yourself out of lockdown. But I, I saw some research that I, others might have done by Nielsen in, in the US market. The other side of that is people's confidence and how people's behavior is going to inevitably change over the next 18 months, two years. When do people feel confident and comfortable doing things is as important, if not more important, than when governments decide to relax restrictive measures. And you can already see that. I mean, if you see, for example, advertising revenues are going down, you, you feel this on television, you feel this on radio, you feel this on, on even online marketing, because companies cannot sell things, so they won't advertise for it, and, and therefore you can't make money in, in advertising content. And, and this is something, even if we were to end the lockdown tomorrow, we would still feel this effect for many more months. And I think this is something that is severely underestimated at the moment. Absolutely. I feel like, well, our, our state is going to be a test case because I live in Tennessee and we're supposed to open on Friday. And I think that that's hilarious because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> My family is staying home, you know, pretty much. I mean, no one is, you know, that's not, that's not a viable solution to just suddenly be able to walk out the door. The US is an interesting one, isn't it? And I, and I always appreciate that the European reporting of the US is very different than the US, but certainly it's presented in the European as the, the marches against the shutdown, the big campaigns and, 
and you know that is all is the kind of the classic go to Tennessee you'll find a Trump supporter who's going to say something shocking and that makes it on the BBC News every night of course we appreciate that going on but it is systematic of there were two things there were people's appetite and willingness to stay in a full lockdown which we see waning but that is different from their appetite to go and sit at a ballet or or go to a music gig or to to resume normal life and i think understanding that dynamic yeah
That was Classic Ballroom Dances by New Dog. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Helen Smith of Impala, Tobias Holtzmuller of Gemma, Eloise Fontenelle of Sassem, John Mottram of PRS for Music, Kim Bailey of ERA, and Francesca Trinini of Peer Music Italy. John, I wanted to ask you as well, since you guys just did a live streaming event, you know, what, and this is for anybody who who has an opinion on this, but do you think that we're going to get sick of live streams or do you think we're going to get more into them? It's a really interesting question. And there's something quite special about watching a performer in their front room with just their guitar or their piano as a one-off. But the flip side argument, and someone made this point to me the other day, for an industry that has probably spent the last 10 years, particularly in Europe, telling everyone that music shouldn't be for free, a lot of people have been giving free music away for the last four weeks, doing live concerts for free, you know, and understandably so, music brings people together. But we need to be careful on that concept. I fully agree with you, John. I think there's a a huge appetite for culture and for cultural content, but uh, online... Everything seems to be for free now, and we will have maybe to re-educate people at some point to buy music or buy coupons to go to to subscribe to platforms or whatever. But yes, maybe a bit dangerous also for culture. My hope that people will come back from this lockdown with a huge appetite for real physical interaction with other people. So I went back to the office today for the for the first time in in, in weeks. And I was so happy to see some of my colleagues um, go back. So I, I hope the same applies for, for cultural life. So if you ask me, is live streaming threatening to replace live concerts in the long run? I hope not. I, I think we will experience after this crisis that it is still something different. And I'm counting on that. Definitely. I think one of the interesting things to speculate about is I've been really impressed with all the silver linings that have been coming out of this, the people's creativity and and the way people have been thinking about doing things in a new way. And one thing I was uh, talking to some retailers, Kim, about how, you know, in a lot of cases, record stores are ideally set up for social distancing live shows. If you think about it, you know, with the the rows of records and if you put you know everyone six feet apart and then there's a row of records between you yeah it's kind of amazing it might work although a lot of our shops have only got two racks so i think it depends on the size of the shop to be honest but i definitely agree with the creativity i mean you know we just see so much coming out of our shops at the moment you know really silly things it might be a music pub quiz on a Friday night or the the people from the shop performing with some friends of theirs or we've seen stores manage to set up fully functioning websites in less than 72 hours with literally all their stock on it and getting new customers and then there's the industry events going on as well so we obviously did record store day fill the gap on the weekend that was supposed to be record store day and we saw sales really go up from that We're launching tomorrow with our record label colleagues an album club where we're interviewing some artists about new albums coming out and trying to encourage people to go to an independent record store to buy that album before they sort of listen to the show. So there's loads happening, but I agree with everyone else here. It's kind of about how does this look in three months and have we changed behaviours to expect 
too much for free and people don't want to go back to shops or whatever it is. We've got to be really careful to balance all of those things. Well, the numbers that came out this morning say that Spotify has increased their membership. So that's like a positive, more people are paying for it. But then of course, the ad revenue is also way down as Tobias mentioned, you know, where everything that's across the board. I feel like the advertising revenue will bounce back though, because people are buying a lot of stuff. They may not be buying exactly what they were buying before, but they sure are buying a lot of stuff. I mean, certainly everyone knows that the Amazon situation is, is out of control. You don't want to look at my Amazon order history over the last couple of weeks. It's just like minute by minute. But definitely the streaming services are doing fantastically at the moment. And I think in particular, what we're seeing is kind of older demographics going on to streaming, whereas you might have had the average 60 year old not subscribing to Spotify. Now they can't get to their independent record shop or their HMV. So they're choosing to subscribe. But that again plays to that will we change behaviors forever? Because I think we're accelerating some of that digital shift that we saw historically. I might be more sceptical about your view on the bounce back of the advertising market on the basis that I think there'll be a fundamental difference between what we would call national and local advertising. And when we look at the radio sector, particularly where you've got a model that relies on local advertising and small shops, my concern is they're the ones who and small businesses are likely to be hurt the most to to loot to close in the short term. And that advertising market, the local market, might take longer to bounce back than, as you say, your big national advertisers, supermarkets, Coke, and those sort of things. And I think we might see a divergence there between a two-track growth on, on advertising. I agree with that. And I think that there is also danger that this crisis is is serving as, as a catalyst for process that has already been going on, like a transformation from advertising into online advertising and away from traditional advertising on, on billboards, television, radio, and so on. It could be the, the last severe blow for an for already dying industry. And, and, and therefore, I'm sure there will be advertising afterwards. The question is, will it go to the same outlets or will it be a different type of advertising? And I think Francesca made the point all, earlier. I mean, it's great that, that musical streaming and, and, and online platforms and, and the YouTubes of the world do well in this crisis. The problem with these markets is we don't get as much money out of these markets as we should. And therefore, we cannot recover our losses in other markets from the gains in these markets. Yeah, well, we set the challenge of summer for European countries to update their copyright legislation so that they can comply with the, with the directive, the European directive that was adopted to, to basically put platforms on the same level playing field, services like Spotify and Deezer. So that we would hope that would make a would make a big difference. But I think in terms of of like the overall picture, we are in an interesting place and one of evolution. But I can't believe that advertising revenue, although it's going to move around, I can't believe it's going to totally diminish to such an extent that you know the whole industry is is, is screwed because you know, companies are selling and they do want to be able to tell people what they should buy. I mean, that kind of is a basic instinct that won't go away. But I think that from our members' perspective, it's also really important to to try and and see the, the positive side that could come out of this. So if we just look at it from a perspective of our, our organisation, of our sectors, you know, we can see new relationships developing, new collaborations 
that, that we would never have had before. We, we have this new opportunity to talk to our governments and enter into a new dialogue where we can say, okay, so two years ago, you told us that you can't do anything about tax credits for my companies to help me pay for jobs. Well, maybe that's now is the right time to have those conversations. So, you know, with the right tools in place, you know, there, it is possible that we could maybe come out of this with, with, a, with a better toolbox than we had before. And, you know, music fans will always remain music fans. So they will always seek out and artists will always create and there will always be a way of connecting those. So, you know, of course, it's a period of turmoil, but those connections will remain and they will continue to go around. We just have to work out, you know, how to bridge the two in the meantime financially and make sure that, that artists and, and cultural workers and small businesses that, that, you know, are the lifeblood of the music sector, you know, are still around to be able to push that and drive that creativity in the, in the next few months and, and years. I certainly hope that you are correct about that. And I think what we've seen such a great response from the music industry. You know, really everyone has just jumped on the opportunity to help artists, to help small businesses, to help everybody who's struggling venues and, and retailers and everything.
That was Detroit Trickle Down by Kinski. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Helen Smith of Impala, Tobias Holtzmuller of Gemma, Eloise Fontenelle of Sassem, John Mottram of PRS for Music, Kim Bailey of ERA, and Francesca Trinini of Peer Music Italy. What do you guys think individually from your different countries' perspectives? What kind of an appetite do you think your governments have for continuing this funding if, as we suspect, this is going to continue for the next several years? Eloise, do you have a sense of France's commitment? Well, in France, culture has always occupied a special place. And it's true that we are in close relationship with our Ministry of Culture. But then it's the music ecosystem that has to be better understood. And the fact that there's an immediate response needed right now, but there will be midterm and long-term response that is much more needed because the system works in a way that it's just not only right now, but it has to last longer. And this is the difficulty that we'll have. And also the fact that the special creators in general don't tick the right boxes that the, all the applications the government put in place regarding fundings or any type of ads. So yes, the work is far away and still ahead of us. It's not done. <laughs> yeah, from Italy, we have usually more governments in a year than seasons. <laughs> so it's not really very easy to predict what the next government will think of the whole thing. If this present government were to continue, then we probably would be getting some help even in the future because the current culture minister, gentleman called Dario Franceschini, has been culture minister three years ago. He, he sort of worked with us in deciding the private copy levy uh, V level and an awful lot of other things around copyright. So he knows the industry. He knows many of us personally. So it would be quite easy to sort of convince him of the goodness of our arguments. But as I say, you know, will he be there in two months' time? You know, so we hope he will, but we don't know. I think I agree that, that there will be a great generosity on the level of European governments. I, I, I think we, we see them spending amounts that were unthinkable uh, half a year ago now within days, like mediated procedures, discussions for half an hour, and then they create relief packages of 50 billion euros. I mean, that was impossible to imagine uh, half a year ago. So I, I suppose that funding will be available for, for quite some time. The fear that I have is that if you transform a system that is based on, on a free market approach, on, on people working for a living into a, a state-subsidized system, when will you be able to turn this back? You can already hear people now arguing, well, if the state can take care of culture, why do we need copyright? I, you know, uh, to, to, to put it bluntly, that people will, will be using this against structures we have in place right now to say, well, if culture is there for free on the internet and the state can pay for it, why don't we maintain this system? Why don't we use this crisis to get something from their perspective good out of it? And my fear is that the longer this takes, 
the longer this lasts, uh, the longer the music industry has to rely on state subsidies, the more dangerous it will be for copyright and our, our market structure in the long run. It's interesting. John or Kim, do you want to tackle the UK? Always hard to tell with our government. I mean, obviously, they've put a lot of funding already into the system, which is good, but that can't carry on for long term. I think from the music industry's perspective, we need to be quite creative with government about what we're asking them for. So the kinds of things we're talking about are looking at kind of tax credits for investing in new music, looking at VAT reductions in the UK for cultural goods like music. And I think if the government can see ways they can support the industry without actually just doing state handouts like they're doing now, they're listening at the moment. It's going to be a tough uphill battle. But I think the positive thing at the moment is the UK music industry seems to be talking together. doesn't matter whether you're a manager, an artist, a label, a retailer. We're all kind of going to government with the same messaging at the moment. So fingers crossed they can carry on supporting us in some way, but it's a really tough call. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with, with Kim's comment. I think I, I laugh slightly about your remark about you never get the US to talk about valuing music. I sometimes think of it as the Anglo-American curse. And we've always had that in the in the UK as well, which is, you know, you don't need help. You're, you know, selling records all around the world. Ed Sheeran's number one at the Billboard chart. You're a commercial business. We'll focus on fixing ballet or opera or or something else. So I think it's nowhere near as ingrained in the UK public policy mentality to think about helping music in the way that it perhaps helps other sectors. So I think that there's going to be a bit of a curve there in, in getting the government to understand that we do need help at this point because, you know, certain parts of the industry are not commercially viable when there's no live, when there's a number of things that are stopping us from operating our normal way. And Helen, what do you think from the European Union perspective? Yeah, I think it's interesting what, what you were saying there, Kim, about the fact that, you know, it's, it's maybe easier to talk to governments when you can say, look, you, know, you don't have to put your hand in your pocket now because you know, what you can do to boost liquidity within the sector is, you know, you can have tax credits, you can put a VAT holiday on music and, and other cultural goods and services, you can allow you know, proper valuation of intellectual property on your balance sheet, we, we can change the way that the sector is valued just by adjusting the, the economic code that, that, that they're used. You know, then we can start talking about a recovery that's based around investment rather than, than handout. And if we build tools that are, that are, that are really kind of hook into the, the UK-US mentality, then that also appeals to you know, more traditional European outlooks where you know, they, they also believe in the value of, of culture and see it. In, in a different way, so they're not afraid of the term subsidy, but that doesn't mean they're not also incentivized by the prospect of investment and, and growth. And I think this is the real key to the roadmap that, that we brought out this morning, is that you know recovery depends on having a, a growth and investment-based strategy for the long term, for the next for the next five years and beyond. And those getting that kind of switch in mentality is going to be really, really important. That well, that's certainly how how we see it at the and the moment it's really interesting just to hear from Kim and John about the, the perspective in the UK because it's quite similar, I guess, isn't it, to the discussions that we've been having around the, the Impala Task Force over the, over the past few weeks about this need to kind of change the, the dynamic of the conversation around the crisis. 
Well, we're about out of time, everyone. I wanted to thank you all so much for being with me and uh, best of luck to all of us. You know, let's, let's have this discussion again in another month or so and see where we're at. Thank you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Wimps, New Dog, Kinski, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was recorded via Zoom and in my closet and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Saban, president of the Music Business Association. Stay safe, wash your hands, and I'll see you next week.